Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Britain's rail strike, the largest for 30 years. We'll be hearing from a commuter whose travel plans have been disrupted, he can't get into work, but who still supports industrial action on the railway. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharu. Now, we can report without fear or favour because we don't have to dance to the tune of a wealthy proprietor. We don't take stories down, even if Downing Street rings and asks us to. Instead, we rely for funding on ordinary readers taking out subscriptions. So please subscribe if you can. You'll get details of how to subscribe over at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, uh, thank you. Now, the UK's rail network hasn't quite ground to a standstill, but passengers are facing huge disruption as 40,000 workers at Network Rail and 13 different train companies withdraw their labour in the first of a series of planned strikes. Unions say the dispute isn't just about pay. There are issues around job cuts, working conditions and pensions. Network Rail say they have offered a 3% increase. Any more, though, would have to be met by improvements in productivity. The RMT union, which is organising the strike, wants 7%. We're going to hear in a moment from Sandy James, who lives in Bradford, can't get to his job at the University of Leeds. But first, Ashok Kumar, who is an Associate Professor of Political Economy at Birkbeck University and who has a specialism in labour relations. Ashok, welcome along. Just set the context for this strike. Is it really not just about pay? Yeah, I mean, look, the um, issues are a broader assault on, you know, public sector pay, but also in terms of um, in terms of transport in general. You're seeing the government announce four billion in cuts to transport. And, and so, you know, like yesterday I was on LBC and they said, oh, you know, three days, three days of car, more car use. Won't that be bad for the planet? It's like, well, no, actually, four billion cut from transport, public transportation is a far greater and far more significant effect on who can afford to get on transport, the number of lines there are. In, and also public safety. So it's 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 not just about pay. It's also about the, the sort of the the kind of job losses that they've also proposed. Um, and also it's also about um, it's not actually also about um, pay increases. You know, if you look at the last two to three years, you've seen a freeze in uh, in pay increases, which is actually a real term pay cut. And you've also if you look at the cost of living um, crisis, which is the largest we've seen uh, since at least the 1970s. Um, for at least a, 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 the next few years, it's projected in, in terms of inflationary costs. We're going to see that that 7% is probably what every single the se sector needs to be demanding. The network rail management say that they need productivity improvements in order to increase pay beyond 3%. Now, that seems to include reducing significantly the number of staff on the railways, including big cutbacks on people who staff the offices at the railways. That would be very harsh on those people, but there may be passengers who say, well, look, you know, we, we don't need the number of staff, for example, at stations that we're used to because people are much more used now to downloading travel documents and tickets on their phones using an app and so on. 
Well, look, they've already, if anybody knows about, like, at least traveling in London, everyone knows, and also, you know, across the country, but specifically London, you know, you're seeing these cuts, uh, these uh, strikes happening everywhere. People know that there's been significantly, significant cuts to kind of office work. Anyone who used to travel by the tube, you know, 12, 13 years ago, knows that even in smaller stations, there were, there were more um, office staff. Now that's not the case. You see them sort of dotted around in bigger stations. And, you know, that, that's, that's not only about um, servicing the public, people who may not be using, you know, apps and other things. It's also about, um, about public safety, you know, that, you know, it, especially when you have, you know, late night services, et cetera. So cuts have already occurred to staffing. You know, we've had lots of automation happening across. You often see these Tory and even Labour um, MPs saying, you know, we need to move into a new technologically advanced, uh, automated transport system. Anyone who's traveled across the advanced capitalist world, if you go to the U.S., you, you notice that, you know, actually London is and, and Britain have a far more technolo technologically advanced and automated public transport system. So there's no real significant resistance to that. But it, this is part of a, a part of a broader program of, of cutting services, right? And it's not even about needing to tighten the tighten the belt because you see last year, even though you had the lowest um, kind of take up of, of public transport, you had over half a million generated in profits. We're not talking revenue; we're talking profits, and we're seeing pay packets for the top end be million pounds plus. So it's really, it doesn't make any sense around the tightening belt always happens and the harmonizing always happens at the bottom while people at the, the creamiest layers at the top continue to, you know, generate enormous profits at the public expense. They're being subsidized by the state, private companies subsidize the state and seeing profits. So it's, it's a kind of double whammy and public um, and, and, and workers are seeing um, their, their wages being depressed in real terms. So I think, um, it doesn't really make much sense why they're, 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 they're saying they can't afford it. The government, of course, is concerned about inflation. Of course, the workers are concerned about inflation as well. But from a, a different point of view, the government fear that a significant increase above the 3% might contribute to even worse inflation than we have at the moment, in itself adding to the cost of living crisis. And the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, has said he thinks the strike is a huge act of self-harm. And his point is that we're just coming out of COVID. Rail passenger numbers declined significantly, inevitably, over COVID. They're just starting to recover, but this might put people off using the railways yet again. What's strange about the COVID argument, and I see what you're saying, is that during COVID, they say, hey, you got to tighten your belt. You're the heroes. They call them heroes. They call them essential workers, etc. And then after they come out of it, they go, oh, you, you know, people in their pajamas are getting million pound packets while people waking up the crack of dawn and working under conditions of COVID are now getting job losses and now getting wage suppression. It's it's kind of um, it's surreal when you think about it. But it's also the question of um, of cost of living and inflation. These people are workers. You know, the average worker is making between 25000 and 31000 We're not talking about train drivers, which most of them are actually an asset of a different trade union. So if, if, if you do wage depression for workers, that actually work, worsens the cost of living crisis. If you give more money to the top end and less to the bottom end, less is circulated. This is middle of the road Keynesian economics, right? If you saw, you know, the inflationary problems of the post-World War II era, what you call the golden era between 1948 and 1968, the top marginal tax rate was 91.5% in America, 
We're not even talking about Europe. We're talking about the center of world capitalism, America. And why was that the case? Because they took that money and they gave it to the bottom end and those people spent that money. They didn't put it in some you know, trust. They didn't put it in some bank account. They didn't financialize it or stocks and trades. They spent it. And that was good for the economy. You want to fight runaway inflation? Circulate more capital. I did promise you that we would have a commuter whose travel plans had been disrupted, but who nevertheless supported the industrial action. That person is Sandy James, who joins us from Bradford. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Adrian. So tell us a little bit about yourself first, Sandy. You work at the University of Leeds, that's right, yeah? Yeah, I'm, I'm an atmospheric chemist. I work in a lab at uh, Leeds University, and I travel by train every day. So what is this going to mean to you? Well, I'm, I'm working from home the rest of this week, basically. Um, you know, I've had notice. I've been able to save up some admin work. I've got reading. I've always got writing that I need to catch up on. All of those things are better done around my day-to-day lab work, but um, I, can, I can handle it. Over time, though, and the indications are that this industrial dispute will continue perhaps for many months, you can't do lab work at home. No, no, that's not going to happen. And, and for example, after coronavirus we've been talking about, I was nearly the only one on a carriage for several months because I had to get back in. But you say you support the strikers. Why? So, I mean, my understanding, and Ashok's given us a really good basis for this, is that this dispute is about the government cutting funding to the railways. And in, in a world undergoing climate crisis, that's the last thing we should be doing. You know, we need to be getting people off the roads and off the aeroplanes and onto the railways. And as a commuter, I see every day that people vote with their feet. If the service that they're provided is worse, if the price increases, they get back in the car. And it's really as simple as that. At the same time, though, if people aren't using the railways as much as they used to, and the evidence is that we aren't yet back to pre-COVID levels, isn't it hard to justify the scale of subsidy that we were providing before? No, I I wouldn't say so. As someone who sees year on year the increase in what it costs me to get to work, I am very much in favour of at least an improved service and preferably a reduced cost to the user. And, and remember that when the, the railways grind to a halt and people can't get to work, the whole nation loses out economically. So if you force workers to take this kind of action, it's, it's economic self-harm on a national scale. But you fundamentally believe that as we address this era of climate emergency, we need to be making public transport a priority, and that means funding the railways perhaps to a level that we haven't previously seen in this country and other public transport too. Absolutely. I mean, we, we need to be making the best of the infrastructure that we have. That's, that's how climate budgets work. We, we can't be spending lots and lots of industrial effort building new stuff. What we mostly need to do is travel less, but we have to find the ways that we do have that enable low carbon transport. And that means railways. We, we do have a good system of railways, um, which we can work on and we can work with. Uh, but, but reducing safety checks, reducing maintenance, 
um, and discouraging commuters from using that service isn't going to help that situation. Yes, Ashok, it's previously been reported that Network Rail are looking to save £100 million a year on their maintenance workforce. Of course, Network Rail is, is now effectively nationalised again. We had a period when the the infrastructure body was privatised and we had some awful tragedies on the railways at that time, which is pretty much the only reason that government brought it back in-house, as it were. And you would hope that if they do save £100 million, that those safety checks would still be carried out, that there would be improvements in productivity to ensure that any reductions in staffing would be covered. But there's going to be a fear there, isn't there, that the railways just won't be as safe if we have fewer people working on maintenance. Yeah, it's really that simple. The fewer people you have ma- working in maintenance, working on the on the rail lines, working in a, a, a sector that's you know h- at high risk. You know, if you um, there are a lot of injuries and you know a lot of safety issues in uh, these kinds of transport systems built you know decades ago and some you know half a half a century ago, um, and so one in terms of rail lines as well, century ago, and so um, there's a public safety issue, but it's also what um, uh, was spoken earlier. The more you see cuts in these programs, it's always harmonizing downwards. The more you see cuts, today it's 100 million on, on, on maintenance, tomorrow it's another 100 million on some other part. You're seeing the steady erosion. We should see more investment, more staffing, more rail lines, more lines, you know, and cheaper fares when you should be seeing greater investment in a system where we're seeing the climate crisis at our precipice, um, we're seeing talks of cuts and those cuts need to be resisted for all of the reasons that you've you've outlined. Yeah. And the Treasury has told the Department of Transport to cut its annual budget by 10 percent. The Department for Transport is thus telling train operating companies, private companies that it subsidizes with taxpayers cash that the money they receive is going to be cut. So that will lead to a reduction in rail services. What interests me, Ashok, and particularly wearing my Byline Times hat, is that so much of this media narrative is framed around the strikers, people harking back to the 1970s, which, of course, most listeners and readers have no direct experience of because they were too young or weren't born at the time, and how little of this debate is framed around what the government is failing to do with regard to transport? Yeah, look, I'll just be honest with you. I, My union, and I'm an electors union, have been on strike on and off for the best part of a decade. And we have made zero gains. We've had 20% reduction in our pay, real-term reduction in our pay. We're the least paid lecturers in the entire advanced capitalist world. Um, and uh, we haven't been able to articulate, and we're gonna see more cuts now, and we're gonna see no cost of living adjustment. The rail workers are not just, and I'm not, I don't mean this in some lefty poetic way, genuinely are articulating a politics to the general public and to the government that we are not able to do, that we haven't been successfully able to do. And we're in negotiations right now when they're articulating on politics around the cost of living and they're say, saying, we cannot absorb this cost of living crisis. We have to at least be met so that we can survive it. 
they're articulating that for themselves and for me. They make it easier for me when I'm in pay negotiations with my, my employer, with my union, to say, hey, this is a politics that I'm not coming out of left field here. This is a politics that have been generalized, that have been articulated for days and days and days in the press. Sure, in hostile ways, but also in sympathetic ways. And so despite what the mass sort of corporate media and even the government media of the BBC and others might have you believe, and this is not probably, it's a form of propagandizing, the vast majority of people, if you see now versus 10 years ago, the rail workers are being supported by lots and lots of people. It's not as antagonistic as the press would have you believe, and it's not as antagonistic as it was, I think, before this kind of crisis occurred, because people see themselves increasingly less as consumers of the rail lines as more and more as people who also have a cost of living issue with their employers. Yeah, and you've talked about your own... Go on, sorry. Maybe I'm being way, way too optimistic. I mean, this is just what I I, I see. It's a, a kind of a significant shift from what I've seen in years previous. And you've talked about your own industrial dispute. We have this industrial dispute on the railways. There is clearly an appetite amongst many sectors at the moment for industrial action. People talking about a summer of discontent. This is a broader problem than just lecturers or indeed the railways. Look, if you look at and I don't want to, if you look at the biggest waves of, 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 of strikes in the 20th century, they came right after World War One and they came right after World War Two. That's partly because of a labor crisis, a labor shortage. It was partly because there was a feeling that there was a feeling of national sacrifice. And then you come back to a job and you're being exploited and you're being, the government's coming against you. You know, a third of Americans between 1945 and 1946 were on strike. So I'm, I'm, you know, a scholar of America and other places, but you know, that similar numbers you see in Britain as well. So what happens is after COVID, people have done this sort of national sacrifice. They come back to jobs. They feel immiserated in those jobs. You've seen a labor crisis where people aren't willing to go back to work. So there's a labor shortage. We're in full employment now, now, basically. And you're seeing forms of wage depression. So it's a perfect cocktail for people to say, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of this. Ashok Kumar, thank you very much indeed. Ashok Kumar from Burbeck University. Thank you also uh, to Sandy James. Let's hear now from Ellie Mae O'Hagan from the Centre for Labour and Social Studies, or CLASS, a left-leaning think tank. What does she think of the decision to go on strike? I think it's inevitable because you can't expect people to take pay cuts during the cost of living crisis. Um, and it's clear that the government is not willing to negotiate. They're not at the negotiating table. So really, you know, the, the people who are working on the railways are really left, left with the only option that they have, which is to go on strike. I don't think any of them want that because they lose pay um, because, you know, and also because the government attacks them. Um, but really, that's what happens when people are forced into a situation where they have to make difficult choices. You know, one of those choices is being able to put food on the table and the other is going on strike. And they've chosen that. And I think most people listening to this would choose the same in their position. This is not an industry that is on its knees, is it? I saw that rail companies between them, the privatised rail companies, had made something like £500 million in profits in the last year. Yeah, and actually, um, today, just before we started recording, so for your listeners, that's Monday, the 20th of June, um, the IPPR released a report that showed that um, many corporations have actually increased their profit wage, profit rates, sorry, while not in increasing people's wages. 
Um, and actually, we've seen that, you know, actually the, the rise of, in these profits is, is being created by quite a small number of, of companies. And most of the profits are not, according to this research, going back, reinvesting into the companies to provide better services. They're actually going out, out to shareholders. So in simple terms, what that means is the cost of living crisis is happening because all of the prices are going up. Companies are charging more than the cost of the increase of, you know, the wholesale, the increase in the wholesale cost. And instead of using that increase to make like to cushion their workers, make it a bit easier for the people working at those companies, they're actually just keeping those profits and giving them out to shareholders. So we're seeing a very small group of people make a lot of money while, while really the vast majority of people, this is not just working class people, it's middle class people as well, who are actually starting to have to count the pennies. And you know, of course, there are some people who are, you know, in absolutely dire straits. And so something really does have to be done. Is there a practical issue here, though, in the sense that if pay is increased at a time when we're already running at double digit inflation, won't that further stoke the fires of inflation and create more inflation, which will in turn increase the demand for increased pay? You know, is it not all a vicious circle? Well, I think, you know, I think that inflation is being mainly driven by um, this huge increase in in um, profits. And, um, you know, what this report of the IPPR found is that it's being driven by global factors. And I suppose, you know, I would just say this to the governor of the Bank of England. If you want wage restraint, let's start with you. You know, I find that so much of this is people who are being paid many, many, many times more than the average salary, who are asking people who are on the average salary or lower to take a pay cut. And that just is not right. You know, the idea that we have to be at the mercy of whatever the economy is doing and there's nothing that we can do to actually make sure that ordinary people can put food on the table. It's just not true. You know, the pandemic showed us that the government is able to intervene in our lives and intervene in our working lives in massive ways when it needs to. And it needs to now. It's just not choosing to. Yeah, it's interesting that during the pandemic, I think the rail companies received something like £10 billion or thereabouts in public subsidy and received a management fee for managing the railways in the meantime. And I know some commentators said that this was a classic case, really, of a post-privatisation industry in that the shareholders they benefit from the profits that the company makes. But when the downturn comes, they're not actually sharing in the risk, the risk to the rail companies of the pandemic, as it was for other industries, in fairness. But that risk was borne by the taxpayer. So they get the benefits at the upside of being a privatised industry, but not the disbenefits of the downside. I mean, we're very familiar with this. We saw it with the banks in twenty in 2008. We've seen it with energy companies, you know, we've we're now seeing it with rail companies where, you know, um, they make bad investments, they make bad decisions, they take risks. And then the government, in other words, us, we have to step in and bail them out. And there are seemingly never any consequences. So really what these people are being asked to do who are going on strike today is to accept a pay cut, um, to accept worsening terms and conditions, all the while their bosses take more and more profits 
then hand them out to shareholders and do nothing to improve the services and face no consequences when they make bad decisions. And I think when you put it like that, you can really see why people are going out on strike because it's just not tenable. Yeah, we have this underlying narrative of harking back to the 1970s, even though, of course, most listeners or most readers of the mainstream press were not alive in the 1970s. But of course, as people have been pointing out, the three-day week power cuts actually happened under a Conservative government under the Ted Heath government in the uh, in the early 1970s. But nevertheless, the spectre of the past is used to beat down the disruption caused by organised labour. And that is a perennial problem, given that we live in a society where a small number of newspaper proprietors who are right leaning have a, a disproportionate impact on what we see, read and hear. Yeah, I mean, all of this stuff about, you know, um, going back to the 70s, it's just not... The, the fact is that in the 70s, unions had massive power in this country, which they don't have anymore. And actually, if you look at what's happened in this country in terms of equality and unions, you can see that as unions' power has decreased, inequality has increased. And so when we think about what I was saying earlier about, you know, these companies taking profits but not giving people pay rises, I think actually the better conclusion, the more accurate conclusion to come to is that more union power is needed, that actually we need more union power, we need more um, intervention in the economy right now. So, mm. yeah. The I, I suppose the, 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 the counter-argument to that, though, Ellie May, is that, Look, whatever your view on the strike, and clearly you're very supportive of it, the reality that, as so often with strike action, it is ordinary people, commuters, people going to school Mm. and so on, who will bear the brunt of this. It will not be the people who run the railways, who the union members have a bone to pick with. It will not be the shareholders it will be ordinary people who, in a sense, have nothing to do with this dispute. And that's where I think to many people it will feel harsh and unfair that the people who suffer are not the people who are responsible for any of this. Well, the people who work on the railways are ordinary people, you know, and they're ordinary people who were hailed as heroes just a year ago for keeping the country moving during a global pandemic. They're the ones that continued to go to work and put their lives on the line. And let's remember this. People died because they did that, you know, and we we all used to get on on our doorsteps and, and clap for these essential workers that used to do that. And now we're trying to say that they're the enemy of ordinary people, but they are ordinary people and they have a right to stand up for their their working lives they have a right to say no when the, um their bosses are trying to impose harsh conditions on them and what i would say to people who are frustrated by that is you too have that right you know you have the right to join a union you have the right to stand up to your boss and i hope that this inspires you to do that and i do think that actually this does affect bosses and i'll give you an example Um, Just last week, GMB Union announced that bin workers in Wealdon who went on a strike, um, who took action for about six to eight weeks, that actually they achieved a 26% pay rise. 
So that was an inflation-busting pay rise. And the reason that they achieved that is because it does affect bosses when people go on strike. That's why they do it. That's why it works. That's why often people win strikes. So I think it's important to remember that the rail workers are ordinary people like you and me. Um, they have families, they have bills to pay, and they're doing what any of us should do when you're facing this situation, which is that they're standing up for themselves. That's Ellie Mae O'Hagan from Class, the think tank. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. You get details on how to subscribe at our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget as well to check out the Bylines app on your smartphone, opening up the world of our regional bylines as well. Thanks very much indeed for listening. I'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.